0: I watched the sunrise, I watched the sunset. When it got dark again, that's when I knew I was in trouble. I'd been swimming for too long. But in, in this moment, I, all that stuff came back to me. All Everything I had rejected to become an atheist came back to me. I knew that God and the devil were having this wrestling match over my soul. It was almost like the Satan pulled the curtain back and he said, I've got you right where I want you, and I
1: knew it was Satan's voice. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo, and this week it's inspired with Matt Pridgen. Matt Pridgen is in South Carolina. I first met Matt, I think it was June 2005, which is incredibly significant because of some truly life shaping uh, events that he's going to describe shortly. I mean, it's great that you are still alive, Matt. In fact, I've called this podcast Dead Man Floating, which again, people will get to know about shortly. Uh, You came out to Burundi in 2008, so we go back was it 16, 16ish years, which is a, a decent stretch. Anyway, Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So listen, let's just you know get straight to it. You, you in, in May 2005, uh, you very nearly died. What brought you to that point? Give us a bit of context beforehand leading up to that.
0: Right, so it was the summer before my senior year of university. I uh, got my hands on some LSD. I took 27 hits of LSD Mm. in about the course of three weeks and totally lost my mind and tried to kill myself in the ocean. And this is where I met Jesus. So leading up to this, I was doing drugs every day. I was a college student. um, But over the years, I went to less and less class. I was a self-proclaimed atheist. I believed truly that when you die, you rot in the ground. that's it lights out so for me there was no real sort of existential purpose to life and i just did whatever felt good i was a true hedonist and even my friends i was partying with were sort of concerned about me towards the end because of the amount of drugs that I was taking. I just took everything sort of to the extreme. And that's part, partly my personality, but a big part of it was my philosophy. Again, I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in any life after death. So I just decided if you can live for 80 years and be an investment banker or a lawyer or a doctor and work your butt off. And you die and you're in the ground or you can live for 20 years and do drugs and you die and you rot in the ground. Same outcome. Uh, So I I got really deep into drugs. Like I said, I was actually hanging out with some drug dealers at the time. And my friend who was a drug dealer pulled me aside and said, I think you're taking too many drugs. Uh And that's when you know you have a problem. Mm -hmm. I also told my parents at the time that I was taking LSD and that I was the second coming of Jesus, uh, which is another red flag. And I was under house arrest at the time when I tried to kill myself. So I drove out to Folly Beach County Park, which is a local beach here in Charleston, South Carolina, and swam straight out into the ocean thinking, i had been hearing this voice telling me when to die and where to die. And I thought it was the voice of God. Like I said, I was taking all this LSD. I went from believe, from being an atheist to believing I was the son of God or some sort of form of that sort of God himself. So I swam out at 5.30 in the morning. It was still dark when I swam out. My plan was to swim out as far as I could. So even if I wanted to turn back at the last minute, I wouldn't be able to. So there I am swimming out as far as I could. Also, uh, when i the water, uh, I parked my car right in front of the gate at the county park. There's only one road in, one road out. And I'm on the beach about to go in. These two police officers come out and I thought they were going to arrest me because I was high on on drugs. So I ran from the police only only time before or since I've run from the police, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, I dove into the water. I got there before they did. And they're not about to jump in the water, I guess, after some crazy kid, it turns out they they just wanted me to move my car so they could open up the park. Mm. Uh, but I was you know in this deranged state of mind. So I swam sort of with hellfire underneath me like I was trying to get away from the police, they called the Coast Guard. So a Coast Guard boat with went within 50 feet of me, but I ducked under the water because I didn't want to be found at this point. So I swim out probably about 10 hours into my swim. I sobered up. And I'm in the middle of the ocean. I literally can't see what land in any direction. It's just water all around. And I'm trying to drown myself. I was trying to force my body under the water. And I was like, well, this isn't working. You know, it's just, I couldn't do it. And so I turned and it was was upon the turning. I can't explain this, but on the turning, I had this revelation of eternity. And I knew in one moment's time that eternity was real, that heaven was real, that hell was real, that God was real, the devil was real. And I grew up in church, but we weren't a big praying family. You know, we went to church on Sunday, but it was kind of normal Monday to Saturday. We didn't talk about god we didn't talk about jesus i'd never read the bible for myself or anything like that but in, in this moment I, all that stuff came back to me all everything i had rejected to become an atheist came back to me i knew that god and the devil were having this wrestling match over my soul and it was almost like the satan pulled the curtain back and he said i've got you right where i want you and i knew it was satan's voice telling me to go into i was he I, he told me where to kill myself how to kill myself all of this stuff and it was like instantly revealed to me that it was satan and i knew in that moment that if I died, I was going to go to hell. And I, I can't explain it. I didn't see hell. I didn't hear hell, but I felt the hopelessness of hell. It was like the door had been shut and I knew that I was going to be eternally separated from God. And it was like this cold, dark place. It was the most horrible thing that has ever happened to me before mm. or since. I still today, 16 years later, wake up thinking about it almost every single day. It's just a reality of my life. I had this radical encounter with God. And now, interestingly, the first thing I did, I didn't pray right away. I, my first thought was, I'm swimming back to land. So I turn around, I piped out of the water, I just I tried to get as high out of the water so I could figure out where land was and I used the sun to orient me. So I swam with the sun, like you're crossing a desert, you know, I just kept the sun in the, the same position I swam, I was hoping I'm swimming to the right place. Mm. Uh, and I swam, literally, I went in the water at dark, I watched the sunrise, I watched the sunset when it got dark again. That's when I knew I was in trouble. I've been swimming for too long. And I flipped over on my back. And this is the dead man floating, I, I was out of strength. I had no, uh, no, not another stroke left in me. I, I remember sinking under the water thinking, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm going to hell. I'm going to die and go to hell. And I, I, I came to the surface and I was floating and I just said, God, if you are real and you save me, I will never drink or drug again as long as I live. And I thought that was a pretty original prayer at the time. I found out later there are <laughs> other people who have prayed that prayer. Yeah. But at the time, I, was th- I meant it with all of my heart. And I saw sure. these three birds, three white birds fly overhead. And then a second later, I saw three more white birds fly overhead and I was like, all right, maybe that's a sign. So I started swimming. I would swim ten counts and then float and then swim ten counts and float. And I ended up swimming ashore at a place called the Sanctuary Hotel. 18 hours after I started, so I swam wow. for 18 hours in the ocean without flotation, and I left. It's amazing that God's timing and His His orchestration of this event. I left Folly Beach. It says the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I landed at a place called the Sanctuary, mm-hmm. and so I'm 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 pretty tall. I'm six foot six. I was you know about 220 pounds at the time. I walk up. The Sanctuary is a five star resort on Kiowa Island, seven miles from where I started, and they were not happy to see me, a big naked guy at the <laughs> Five-star resort, uh, but they did, you know, call the, the ambulance and they took me to Roper Hospital. I was in the hospital for five days and I lost 20 pounds just from the, the muscle breakdown over the next couple of days of being in the hospital. But the miracle is I never had another drink or drug. Literally, have not had a sip of alcohol, not a single drug in 16 years. I've uh, been walking with Jesus and just radical on fire. I mean, I got on fire right away. I was in the hospital room. I remember in the hospital telling people about Jesus, and I had some of my drug drug dealer friends come and visit me, and I was like, guys, you gotta stop you know, doing drugs. You guys, you know, you gotta start. You know, you gotta follow God. I was telling them about my experience of hell and and and, and what I you know, what I had seen there. And I realized, you know, in the ocean, when when I had this revelation of hell, it wasn't like, oh, there's this unjust judge who's sentencing me wrongly to this eternal punishment. It was like, I had chosen this every day of my life with Mm. every breath. I had every opportunity to turn away. He even showed me all these opportunities that I had had in my life to turn away from the course I was on. And I realized even in hell, I would, I could say God is merciful and just because I'm right where I belong. It was just, it was the most horrible thing. So I was instantly sharing with all these people you know, I just was set on fire and just you know I don't want to tell a story about something that happened 16 years ago so I just want to share one little story you know yesterday my 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 little 3-year-old daughter had a cold and you know we're just trying to be very sensitive about school school and be, being sick so my three older boys we kept them home one of them wasn't feeling well we just wanted to make sure we didn't spread anything so i had the three boys my, my boys are eight years old and i have twin six-year-old boys and then a three-year-old girl and we rode our bikes down to this canal near our house a little creek and we were under the bridge um you know throwing rocks and stuff and there was a man under there and I just felt prompted that he was doing a survey for the bridge and I felt prompted to ask him, you know, what's your name? He says, his name is Matthew. I said, well, my name is Matthew, that's great. And I asked him if he's a Christ follower. And he said, I'm not, I'm straddling the fence. My wife has leukemia. She is a strong believer, but I just don't know right now because I don't, I don't know what's going on in my life. So I started sharing the gospel with him and just how God loves him and how he wants to heal him and how it's time for him to dive in. And he said, this is so amazing. Last week on Thursday, God sent me someone. And he said, today is Thursday again, God sent me someone. He's like, I know God is telling me to turn my life back to him. Wow. And so I'm still, I want to still be on fire, just as on fire as I was when I came out of the ocean because God saved me from a lot of mess and 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 not just on this earth but he saved me from a, from an eternal hell and of my own choosing and he put my feet back on solid ground he brought me literally back to life from the dead the floating dead and I just I, I'm excited I don't have to share his gospel every day yeah. I'm excited to share
1: his good news every day with the people around me wonderful so brilliant that you still got that fire. I'm the same. I just want to keep the fire in my belly going all the way. Now, okay, you've lost 20 pounds. You, you, you get your clothes back on. You are five days later, you're out of hospital. You're just a new being, aren't you? It's a fresh start. Uh, what was the first thing pretty much you, you sort of decided you are going to do in your life? So that summer I was home.
0: Uh... I started reading the Bible for the first time. That, that radically changed me. I remember reading the book of Proverbs and thinking, I cannot believe this book has been on my shelf my whole life, and mm. I've never read it. Like I said, I was a churchgoer, but I was daily writing sticky notes to myself. I could not believe the wisdom that was contained there. Mm. But I ended up going back to Duke University where I was in school. I finished my senior year there, miraculously graduated from university. But there was this group of homeless men across the street from my apartment at Duke. And I ended up, they were they were camping out at a church that uh, was sort of dead. They had a congregation of about 20 people. And there was really no one there most of the week. So these homeless guys lived in the parking lot there. And it broke my heart to be in a country of so much affluence to see these men sleeping you know, on the side of the on the hill, they called it the hill uh, at this in the parking lot of this church. I'm sure I had seen homeless people before this, but never in my heart had I've had such a conscience for it. So I just started going out there and I would take uh, burritos to them or I would go and buy a bunch of KFC and uh, have a party. And I remember this scripture, Jesus said, if you have a party, don't invite the well-to-do, the rich. He said, invite the blind, the lame, the mm. poor. And I was like, all right, we're having a chicken party in the parking lot of this church. <laughs> and I, and I, I felt in my, first, my life, my, in my heart the first time in my whole life just coming alive, mm. serving the very least in our midst. And I would tell them my story and I would tell them the gospel. I remember when I first started telling my story, they would all hide their 40s. They would drink these 40s, like 40 ounces of beer and big bottles of beer. They would hide them behind their legs. But I would hang out with them and so they eventually just started drinking around me and, you know, they'd smoke their cigarettes or whatever. They I got to be sort of part of the crew. And there were three guys that lived underneath a trailer, an 18-wheeler trailer, and I would crawl under the 18-wheeler trailer. And I remember one time uh, I was under there with them, just sh- sharing with them. And in my work clothes, I was, you know, dressed, uh, as you say in the UK, smart. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, just, just and, I, and the, the police came. And they sent me out, so I was like, "Hey, what's going on, guys?" And like, "Oh, uh, you know, they they treat me totally different than they do the homeless guys living under the trailer." And yeah. so they, they found me to be useful, uh, hanging out with them. But it was an unlikely place. I never imagined I would be under bridges or in the parking lot or under this 18-wheeler trailer with with these homeless. But again, it was the, it was the place I felt very connected because the, the I, I shared my story with all of my college friends, all my university friends, and none of them wanted to hear about Jesus. They didn't want to hear about eternity and hell and all these things. And so I, I decided and I continue to share with them, and I will continue to share with them. Um, but I I found that the the homeless who were right around the corner were so receptive to my message. And I saw a lot of fruit in that season, some families reconciled, I was able to help a few guys get off of um, parole for prison, they were having to pay kind of like a debtor deal where they had to pay this amount every month, and we were able to pay their fines and get them kind of set free from that system. And, um, you you know, just a lot of meals, a lot of conversations, a lot of prayers, and uh, a really a fruitful season uh, sharing the gospel in the streets.
1: And in scripture, it says, I think five times, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I guess you know some of our more well-to-do friends would would be on that spectrum of pride and self-sufficiency and. My experience, as I'm sure yours is with homeless people, is that in general, there's, there's, not, well, there's certainly less pride and they can't fake it. There's not a need to have a mask on because they've obviously screwed up in life, haven't they? Right.
0: And, that's, and that's, that was where I was before, too. My pride was probably my biggest
1: blinder as well. Mm-hmm. So tell us how your ministry to the homeless led to your current ministry in the inner city and your passion for racial justice and equality in America and beyond.
0: Yeah, so I uh, moved back to Charleston a few years after I graduated from university and I was involved in a ministry called the Hot Dog Ministry. So every day at 5.30, we would have a group of guys come out, guys and gals, uh, and serve a meal for the homeless right along Meeting Street in downtown Charleston, pretty busy road. And you know we'd have sometimes 80, 90 people show up uh, and, and get hot dogs. Um, and every we had different churches sponsor every night of the week. So we had seven nights a week. We had a meal going on at uh, you know, this one location, it was an abandoned gas station on Meeting Street. And my job at the hot dog ministry was to preach. So while they're cooking the hot dogs, everybody's standing in line, they're not doing anything. So I'd share the gospel for about 10 minutes. And as soon as the hot dogs were ready, I would stop because I don't wanna you know <laughs> be a barrier, but yeah. I found incredible response. But the hard thing was when people would respond, if they came out of the line, they would lose their place in the line. <laughs> but yeah. I remember one time I, I gave this altar call at the hot dog ministry, I had about Twelve or thirteen people come out of the line, and we were praying, and we saw people get healed, and it was just incredible. And I pray, I was like, Lord, we need a tent, we need something to be able to preach where we're not, you know, people aren't having to come out of the line and miss their hot dog. So we set up a tent across the street in another lot, we did this tent revival. Well, where the hot dog ministry was is in the historically black east side neighborhood where most of the city housing projects are in Charleston. So who came to the tent was a lot of the people from the neighborhood. We had a lot of homeless as well, but there, uh, specifically eight young girls, elementary school age girls came to the tent every single night and they really wanted to be baptized. So I contacted their parents. I got permission from all the parents. We baptized these eight little girls. And when the tent came down, we did it for two weeks. One of the girls said to me, why did you take my church down? And It was like the Lord just, you know, convicted me just right in the heart. And so we started this Bible study in this project neighborhood, which we did for solid for five years, every week for five years. So I'm in the project neighborhood, I'm in the, the inner city. And it totally changed my way. And we have all these, you know, this news in the US about the policing, I saw firsthand, I grew up in a white suburb. And I've never ever I can't remember ever seeing a police car in my community growing up. Uh, and then on the east side, you can't not see a police car. If you go there for a few minutes, you're going to see a police car. The, the these communities are, are policed totally differently. Uh, so I saw that, but it, it was it was my heart for the homeless that led me into this. And, uh, you know, we ended up with these girls. And I remember, you know, how hardened they were uh, to the gospel. I remember one time we, we always would do our program on a Thursday and we had this debate. We had a fourth grader, I think. Her name was Tanasia and she had cussed out her teacher that day. And we were debating like, should, should Tunisia get to come to Kingdom Club? Like we don't want her not to come because you know, we wanted to be there, but we also don't want to reward her cussing out her teacher, you know, in yeah. the fourth grade. Uh, and so, to this day, six years later, Tanasia is she had a total heart change. I was expecting maybe like one year. It took about four, <laughs> but she got it. And we now raise money for her and her sister Jamila. Jamila was the one who who asked me why did you take my church down. We raise money for them to go to a private Christian high school. They are at our church every Sunday. They we worship in our children's ministry. They they help out with the young. Kids, Jamila especially helps out with the young kids. Taneja leads worship, and they are like totally different people. Uh, it's been so awesome to see, but it's really changed my heart towards uh, towards the black community, and uh, you know, as we get into a little bit later, just about uh, the communities of uh, who have been
1: oppressed or marginalized globally um, throughout the world. Wow, I mean, I love it. It's long haul, isn't it? Five years of uh, weekly. Bible studies really investing these girls so they knew they had value, proper value before you and in God's sight as well. And I love it, the fact that, you know, you're this great big six foot six white guy in there and they're, they're African Americans, different, different, totally different context and background. Um, have you got any other cool stories from that season?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a, it was a very challenging time because we're entering the lives of these young people who are uh, growing up in poverty uh, so, when, when you say a good story, it was, it was God bringing good out of, out of darkness. But uh, two of our our girls, actually, it was Tunasia was and Jamila when they were, I think, about 11 years old, uh, their father had been in prison, uh, you know, raised by a single mom and an older sister. Uh, and he had been saying when he was in prison that he was going to sort of come and visit when he was out. They, I think they were writing some letters back and forth. Anyway, he came out of prison, it was like November and he really didn't follow up on his promise, and it was really hurtful to them, and November went by, and December, will come around February of the next year, he ended up being gunned down in the street by his best friend Mm. in a drug deal. And the, the girls were obviously shaken to their core. First of all, their father had really let them down, and now he's gone, and there's really no way for them to connect with him. And so I remember having all, it was six girls at our house. We used to do what we called taco salad dinner night we would have for kingdom club and we would uh, the the, it was a funny story because the first night we ever did a dinner with them we just happened to do taco salad and they would not let us change the menu for Mm -hmm. years they never let us change the menu we always had taco salad dinner night Uh, so we are at the house and we brought it up we started talking to these girls they just started weeping on the couch and uh, as they're weeping on the couch, this dove landed on the fence in our backyard. And I don't ever remember seeing a dove mm-hmm. in our neighborhood where we live in Charleston. I mean, just not a bird. You see very often this dove lands on the fence right behind it. And we knew that the Holy Spirit was moving in this. And uh, we got to see uh, these girls, you know, the, God's hand moving. And we did a lot of inner healing in that in that season of helping them deal with the mourning and then forgiveness. Uh, dealing with the forgiveness of a dad who had let them down and then was not there anymore and i also uh, we did some work even with the mom i remember we went into um her her apartment and you know and, and this uh this you know the projects here are, are um you know kind of squatty brick uh apartments very dark and we went in and we were praying with her and and she was saying the only thing i can i can think of day and night in my sleep, I wake up. It's this, the image of this man who killed my, my. it was her, her husband or her former husband. And she said, it just haunts me day and night, day and night. And so we did this inner healing prayer with her and she forgave him. And instantly mm. she felt relief. And uh, even her back, she was having all this back pain and she and we prayed for her healing. And I, I believe healing so much is connected to yeah. uh, the inner healing, the outer healing of the body. Can be connected to the inner healing of the soul, mm-hmm. and uh, she instantly got relief, and uh, and was able to to release this man to God and to forgive him. Um, and you know, we had times. I remember when Nicole went down there one time and uh, to pick up the girls for an outing, and the whole neighborhood was covered, you know, swarming with police cars, and these these girls, several of them, had witnessed a murder. Before the police had even gotten there, and they saw a young man die in the streets uh, right in front of their house. And Nicole somehow got through this is my wife, Nicole got through um, the, the police tape and picked the girls up. And the crazy thing about that story is the girls all knew who the killer was, and the police didn't, uh, because that's how these neighborhoods work. You know, they mm-hmm. don't talk to the police. Um, and they said they saw the family of this young man who had killed the other person driving off in two cars before the police got there. They knew uh, what was going on you know, in this neighborhood. They had, they had seen so much at such a young age and had been exposed to so much. Uh, there was this compound trauma. And one of the things I really believe about school, I think we, we sort of lose the battle with school before we ever even start because what trauma does, and it's God's mercy, is it shuts down your brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can't you can't you, you know, it, it's it's a, a protective mechanism to ease the pain of of difficult circumstances. Um, but th- they would go into school and they're they're so shut down. It's hard for them. How do you how do you go to school the next day when you witness a murder the day before um, and and learn something new? You know the brain is sort of shut down. So our whole thing really we felt like with Kingdom Club was sort of opening their brain, opening their spirit, opening their minds to to a new way of life and to God's way of life. And again, what we're seeing and now after all these years there's a lot of fruit in that
1: hi folks i hope you're enjoying the podcast if you are it'd be great if you shared it with as many of your mates as possible so other people get to hear about it and listen if you would like to support our work in burundi which is the hungriest country in the world i'd love support there too you can do that by going to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired now let's get back to the podcast so, how has your experience in the black community shaped, changed you, or shaped you as a person to help you understand the heart of God better? So, we have this storyline and it, it's, it's, it's,
0: it makes sense. As the church, you know, there is this, this theme of the New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, and we are God's chosen people. And so, we always want to equate ourselves to Israel. And I think rightly so spiritually, uh, but if you look at the history in America, at least we have 400 years—a very oppressive history. The first slaves, coming black slaves, coming to America in 1619. There were Native Americans who were enslaved here before that, but we're really at four, 400 years. This time frame, and that 400-year time frame is significant. Uh, it's how long the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And if you look at the parallel uh, between the Black Church and the White Church in America, and I know you can say there one church, there's one body with one head, the Christ, I get that. But the reality is the white church and the black church in America have been very separated by oppression. And the mm-hmm. reality is that the black church looks a lot more like Israel, and the white church looks a lot more like Egypt. And mm-hmm. being the oppressor and the black church being the oppressed. And what I have found, you know, we joined a black church several years ago. Currently, our church is very mixed. Uh, we have black and white, and it's a big Hispanic population because we translate all of our services into Spanish, Spanish to reach that demographic that's here. Uh, but. At the time, you know, we 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 went from a sort of an all-white church to an all-black church, and what I found is there's this spiritual connection that's it's very different. It's a heart cry of God save us. It's not about it's not self-help. It's not the American dream. It's really this this cry of like save us from the bondage of sin and death. That's uh, that's the storyline, and it's practically laid out. And you even see the cries in the street right now. Uh, you know, The white community sees the police as our friend and as our protector, mm-hmm. and the black community sees the police as an oppressor still, and rightly so. And what I realized throughout this is that there there is this power in the world. And I believe it's, you know, it, it, not to, you know, make it a big deal about Satan, but it says he's the, the, the prince of the power of the air. So that there's powers and principalities, these spiritual forces of, of, of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Mm-hmm. And then there's lots of people throughout the world who fall under these oppressive circumstances. You know, uh, I was going to bring it up in, in terms of the, the global picture, but you know, uh, you, you know, in, in Rwanda and in Burundi, uh, there there is uh, one of your closest neighbors, that Museveni, uh, who's been in power since 1986. Um, you know, he's there's a government in Uganda that's been sort of propped up and promoted uh, by the U.S. government that has led to a great amount of repression in Uganda and. Uh, from my understanding, uh, you know, the, a lot of the weapons that came into Rwanda before the, the genocide in 1994, came through Uganda, and it came through the US State Department. And so we have not just in the United States, but I mean, and you could go country by country in Latin America, and South America, and uh, the Middle East, and throughout pockets of Asia, where, uh, you, you know, the, at least the US government, I mean, certainly the there the history of empire, the British empire, um, you know, there's, there's this history of of oppression and what i what i see is that god is calling us not just to care for the poor uh, that's a big part of it Uh, in isaiah 58 it talks about you know sharing your bread with the hungry and uh you know clothing the naked and bringing the homeless poor into your house but right before that he also says we're supposed to deal with oppression, to, to break the the yoke of oppression, to loose the bonds of wickedness and to let the oppressed go free. Mm-hmm. There is this this idea of fighting not just poverty can happen to anyone. You know, people can be homeless I we had a friend who was homeless because he was in a car accident and was, was crippled. He couldn't work anymore. And he eventually, his finances deteriorated. He ended up sleeping in his car. Uh, he was a contractor. He was a successful businessman before this. Poverty can happen to anyone, but when you see oppression, mm-hmm. you see one people group being uh, brutally, uh, you know, uh, economically depressed by another people group, uh, violently repressed by another people group, Uh, you know, I believe God's calling us, uh, into, to fight for those. Uh, and I think, I think there is a a realm of politics. You know, people say God doesn't belong in politics, but I believe he does, because I think we're called to fight for, for any people group that's being wrongfully oppressed or marginalized. And so it's just opened my eyes to see the story, the storyline. And it's not just in the old Testament, it's in the new Testament as well. Um, you know, you see it in in the book of James and he talks about the workers, which you oppress and you steal their wages you know if you work a full day you know you should be able to, to receive wages and you should be able to make a living in any kind of situation where that's not the case uh you know there, there's a problem and so for me that, that that's what drove me to be an advocate for the black community here in america and again i think the case can be made for lots and lots of communities globally obviously this is the one that we're closest to and where my my heart bleeds uh, to see the lives of, of our, of our girls of our young people that we are mentoring uh, but then there's so many others who are facing similar circumstances Uh, and so really getting involved and and being politically involved being uh, involved on the in the grassroots level in the community both both go hand in hand to really improve the lives of these young people
1: yeah I, i as you're talking i'm thinking um, I'm thinking of a Desmond Tutu quote along the lines of, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> now, right. you know, I mean, I'm from a privileged, uh, background. I mean, I, by the way, I don't buy into all the extremes of identity politics and, and that sort of stuff and inter- intersectionality, but, but, you know, I am, I, I, I am privileged um what well, my, my whiteness has definitely helped me um what you're saying and i, I know the community you're in it must be uh, people must really misunderstand you it must be an unpopular place to be is that right oh yeah absolutely I mean, And it's interesting because it's it's it
0: goes from both sides um i grew up two miles from this east side community, in a a, a community that was, it's 100% white, it's the south of broad community. Uh, I I grew up in a multi-million dollar home, um, and that's just, property values in Charleston are crazy. But I grew up two miles from this pocket of poverty that's 100% black, and most of these people that, that we, uh, the families that we know are either either have zero wealth or they're in debt either to the power company or through credit cards or something like that. It's totally night and day different. And so I, I thought when I, I kind of show up in the, the poor black community I'm going to be well received. Well I remember I was walking to, the Bible study one time uh, from my car to the elementary school where there was a library uh, where they let us you know you let us use the library to uh, have this uh, our Bible study and on the way this y- a young black man confronted me and said uh, he's first of all he said don't look at me and then I looked away and he said don't look away and he had four guys with him and I, I immediately I don't know what it was inside of me I just started walking straight towards him and I said brother god loves you and his friends busted out laughing i mean (laughs) they thought that was the funniest thing in the world and i just started telling him i was like look i can't change the color of my skin Mm, i didn't choose this Mm. and it was it was amazing he ended up getting in his car and driving off with these four these other guys and one of the moms was outside she said that is tyler and tyra's older brother that was the older brother of two of our girls he didn't know who i was he didn't know i was going to mentor his young sisters wow. he just saw a white man in his community so i get flack from both sides mm. and and it's and i think i think maybe there there is some some uh, identification with the cross here when he says carry carry the cross it's like we're at a point in america we're so polarized yeah. we can make war with our neighbors you know where i'm asking where are the peacemakers right now where are the people who are going to see that both sides you know they there i i understand what you're talking about with with the identity politics i mean there is a line that you cannot cross and so we have to find some some middle ground. It's not one way. It's not the other. I I, I always listen to uh, conservative news media and liberal news media. I try to read them side by side because yeah. they both contain fragments of the truth, but neither of them are telling the true story. Yeah. We have to be the ones who are telling God's redemptive story. God's redemptive story is when we can make peace out of oppression, out of chaos, out of marginalization. You know, like, Uh, I think the forgiveness in Rwanda is one of the most moving and powerful stories I've ever heard. You talk about you know South Africa. I mean the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in America. I think it's desperately needed. I think we need to hear the stories because we we have to we have to forgive. But right now we can't even agree upon a narrative. Mm-hmm. We can't even agree ab- about outcomes. And, and what are we even trying to do? Because we're so polarized. Uh, so it it is a difficult time to be an advocate in America because you really there's really it's hard to fit in in one way or the other, unless you kind of go hardcore into one of the two camps. And again,
1: neither of those camps are really representing the fullness of the truth. I think you're dead right. And and the problem is is that one is tempted to go so all in left or right that, uh, that well, particularly the church's witness becomes very compromised, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think p- one thing that we're missing, we're
0: looking at all of these individual issues, but the, the church is called to be a greater witness of love and a, a, a witness of we, we're supposed to listen first and speak second so that we don't become angry. There's a connection between speaking and anger that we have missed that, that uh, we're called to be peacemakers. So there is, it's not just about what issues you agree with or you, you kind of intellectually assent to, but how is our behavior you know, you can throw the truth out in a way that's unloving and actually be, be tied to, you can tie the, hate, uh, the truth to hate. You can tie the truth to, uh, you know, uh, anything but kindness and mercy and justice. And so it's not all about being right i think it's about being peaceful i think it's about you know obviously with the truth we have to stand for the truth but we also have to be people of peace and who are who are driving towards a middle ground driving towards uh some commonality like if if we if we all care about the young people the same? If we care about this generation the same, what can we do collectively to help them instead of this really bipartisan issue? I think this is a great time for the church to rise up to be a witness, um, but we've got to be more intentional uh, and, and, I think, more compassionate
1: in order to do that. Well, well said, Matt. I think you're speaking so much sense, and I know that what you said could really anger some people, but, you know, if they're hearing your heart And uh, and you're living it. And that's what we need to be as followers of Jesus, living it, living the message of love, incarnational, not uh, making, you know, God has made us in his image and and we go and return the favor. And so, you know, if if we're a, a white Christian in America, we are Republican. And if we're a black Christian in America, we're a Democrat. Would that be fair to say? 100% 100%
0: fair to say. I mean, I, I looked at this this statistic. It shocked me. Uh, you know, it, when uh, was the 2016 election? And the 2020 election was pretty close. But this this, this statistic came from the 2016 election. 81% of white evangelicals. At, well, the range is 70, 75 to 81% depending on what poll you look at. Voted for Donald Trump. White evangelicals. Um, it, the the statistic is it was three percent of black Christians voted for Donald Trump right. and so we have this huge divide in the body of Christ and it shouldn't be so and one of the reasons why I believe is because the white community is very ignorant of the true living conditions in the black community what I found after all the, these five years uh, and, and just so you know the, the reason why we stopped was covid is um, we, we weren't able to continue mm-hmm. on with the Bible study. Uh, we still stay in touch with the girls, but uh, it's been six years, really, since I've been immersed in this community, and I realize there's very little I can do on the ground uh, in terms of community change. Now, individual life change, the harvest is plentiful, it's always ready, uh, and we have seen that. But in terms of actually changing the lives of, of a larger group of people, I realize without welfare reform and without ending the war on drugs, which is the legal excuse that police have to sort of raid and, and, and harass the black community, we're not gonna get anything done. And that's why I've really shifted my focus from a hands-on sort of uh, uh, in the you know individual ministry into more advocacy work, because there are some policy shifts that have to take place. But again, most if, if you're white and grew up in America, I can say this because I didn't see it. I I was totally blind to Mm -hmm. it because it didn't affect me. The the, the war on drugs, which has been raging on for 40 years, it it brushes up against the white community, but it it has not affected the white community in the way it has for the black community, giving the police basically full reign to raid and invade the the poor black community. And even a lot of wealthier middle class blacks don't see it because Mm -hmm. it's not just the black community, it's the poor black community because that's where you get the least amount of legal resistance. you, you know, if you say, you take a SWAT team and you bust down the door of a white frat house, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find some drugs there. But guess how many lawsuits you're going to get within 24 hours? Yeah. You know? A whole bunch. But you can break down the door of, of a project neighborhood and without with impunity. And that's what's been happening for 40 years now. Our prison population you know, in America, it's the biggest prison population in the world. 2.3 million people behind bars in the wealthiest nation in the world. It's, it's bizarre. Our, that our prison population before the war on drugs was started was about 350,000. So we're 2 million uh, over that line. Uh, the war on drugs is really a third era of systematic oppression in America following slavery, 250 years of slavery, approximately 100 years of Jim Crow, and now we're going on 40 years of the war on drugs. And, and unless you see it firsthand, you know, you can hear the stories. But I think white people are very skeptical. And it's kept us very divided. It's time for us to start listening to the cries of the black community. I think it's time for us to listen to the cries in the international community. There's so many cries right now. I think we sh- we have got to be people who are compassionate listening to the cries of people who are in these oppressed situations, or else we're never going to see any, any, any advancement. And we're not going to represent god's heart for the oppressed and the marginalized uh, and and i think that's one of the big reasons why i i was i was personally turned off by christianity because i saw hypocrisy and i saw apathy and i don't want anyone to look at my life and see hypocrisy or apathy because i believe god god cares about pain he cares about every detail of human life. He's not, he's not a distant God. And when people are suffering, you know, it's, I remember you know, when we talked about Moses, he says, the cries of your people have reached my ears. And I think we're getting to that point in America. I think the cries have reached the ears of God. We as Christ followers should be on the forefront of that, coming up with not just compassion, but solutions to help the people who are, who are in these situations.
1: Well, Matt, I agree with so much of what you said. And so much of what you say also sort of shakes me or stirs my thinking and makes me sort of fire off and all sorts of other questions that we just annoyingly have not got time to deal with right now. <laughs> but listen, you've written a book called, uh, what's your second book? You wrote about your first experience from folly, Dead Man Floating. And then this <laughs> recent book is uh, Greatness Revisited. And so I, I'd love people. I think uh, everyone will be resonating or rattling around with the, with uh, the issues that you've been discussing that definitely warrant looking into in greater depth. So, tell us a bit about that book, and then any anything else you want to promote before we close? Yeah, the title of the book is "Greatness Revisited."
0: It's a novel that explores themes of oppression throughout American history, and then. Uh, all the way up to today and to our current global situation. I also have a YouTube channel. I'm constantly putting out videos just under the name of Matt Pridgen. You can find me there. I have a website, uh, themattpridgen.com. You can find my YouTube channel or my books um, through that. I've published four books in the last 10 years, Uh, so you can take a look at those. And again, I really appreciate the time having me on. Uh, just so thankful for your ministry in Burundi. Just quickly, our kids were so moved by the, the health cards, or I guess the identification cards, the $3 identification cards that you guys mm-hmm. were doing at the Christmas push. Uh, we were just really blown away by that and uh, definitely contributed some piggy bank money uh, to that. It was really neat. Uh, I was just so grateful to be connected to you and, and your work in Burundi. Uh, awesome. Awesome to Thanks, to bro. have me on.
1: Thanks, bro. Just for people to know that it was $3 to get these um health cards that the whole family could receive health care. And this one case, this lady had died for the lack of yeah it was about five dollars and her daughter died so unnecessarily thanks matt for backing us thank you for what you shared honestly it's serious food for thought and i love it I can hear your passion and your heart i'm so glad that uh, that suicide attempt did not come to fruition that <laughs> god has kept you alive for the blessing of many people and for stirring up the body it was edmund Burke who said that all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing and may yeah. that be a parting challenge for all of us um, uh, and i'm not accusing us listeners right now of doing nothing but uh, that we are a sleeping the church is a sleeping giant of potential and it, we all need to uh, get our butts in gear and, and anyway i've been inspired that's the purpose of these podcasts it's been inspired this week with matt and thanks very much matt yeah thank you for having me on and so everybody please um at this podcast again, spread the word, give us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it, and uh, you can get on t- in touch with me on simongilber.com or any of the other social media platforms. We'll see you next week. Toodaloo.